Good morning. My name's Adam, and I'm a pastor here. Prayer. Um, prayer is, as Scott said, something we often look at as uh, something that we kind of do, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Maybe it's over a meal. Maybe it's just to kind of get the day going. And we don't spend substantial time really, really praying as God intended us to. Maybe it's because we don't really understand the, the power of prayer. We don't understand what that really means. We don't know the historical context of the high priest entering the holy and of holies on behalf of Israel tied to a rope so that if he ever experienced the glory of God in such a way that he would literally die, they would pull him out on a rope because they couldn't go in after him. That's how it used to be. But now when Jesus dies on the cross and we know the veil is torn in two, the Holy of Holies is now open. So we as believers can enter into the presence of God through prayer. And it's a beautiful thing. And in our passage today, we are going to get one of the most incredible pictures of what prayer should really look like as Jesus enters into a time of prayer to his Father and allows us to be privy to that as we have it in Scripture. And to think that we get to see how Jesus communicated with God the Father is just incredible. And so I hope you see the beauty of it as we go through this passage. So the next uh, four weeks now, but for five weeks we want to spend some time just talking about prayer as a church and how we can be doing a better job of praying as a congregation, uh, also individually what our prayer life should look like. I remember when I was maybe a year or two into my ministry here, it would have been 2010 or 11, and uh, I was asked to lead the prayer time, the monthly prayer time on a Monday night. And I remember sitting down there waiting and I had this whiteboard and I had written the requests or the, or the prayer points that we were going to be praying for that night. And so I'm kind of getting ready in my, you know, young ministry self. And I remember very vividly who walked through the door and I was terrified because it was Sandy Russell, Esther Milheim, Diana Eisner, and Debbie Jackson, now Lau, all entered the room and I was, and I was like, okay, I have to lead them in prayer, a prayer time like prayer warriors. So I literally, I'm pretty sure I just went, hey, here's our prayer points, take it away. (laughs) Because I don't really know what to tell you about prayer because you are very intimidating when I think about how you must pray and how I know you do. So prayer is a very, very serious thing for for us as we enter into the presence of, of God in that way. Last week, Matt began by preaching on the Lord's Prayer. We find that in Matthew 6. It's a prayer that a lot of us maybe have memorized. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And then we go through different um, things that we petition God for, right? Our daily bread, forgiveness for our trespasses. And through that prayer, Jesus shows us first and foremost that we need to glorify God. Our prayer should always be centered on the glory of God. That should be our end goal as we pray. And then he gave us four things that we will see happen if we do pray in that way. So the four things that Matt gave us as application points were one, praying this way reminds us that God's presence is better than his provision. Number two, praying this way should make us bold. Number three, praying this way keeps us humble before God. And number four, praying this way allows us to become a unified community. To think about that and think that we as a a church body could be bold, humble, and unified confident in the promises of God as we approach him in prayer is a, is a pretty cool thing to think about. We are in the midst of teaching prayer to our kids, and um, while we try to do it as much as we can, especially at night as we are kind of winding down and getting them to bed, you can imagine that prayers um, with a two and a four-year-old, if you've had kids, uh, what that looks like at that age. Lenin, without fail, when we pray, is um, God. Usually it's God, thank you for giving us Jesus. I'm glad she starts there. It's a preschool thing. But then she says, and thank you for chocolate, and thank you for candy. 
Amen. <laughs> and that's the extent of her prayer. And without fail, she either prays for chocolate or candy. Even if she hasn't had any that day, which she often does because I'm weak. But she prays for chocolate and candy. And, uh, and then Everly's prayers are a little bit more extensive. She's my two-year-old because Everly likes to pray for whatever inanimate object is in her room. So she will be praying, praying, and then all of a sudden you can tell when her eyes open because it's thank you for lamps and thank you for doors and thank you for pillows and closets, and she just kind of prays for whatever her, her eyes see in the room. And so it's interesting to, to try to teach them what we pray for and why we pray and thank God for things that he has allowed us to have an experience. And so it's pretty cool hearing the prayer of a child. child children's prayers are the best, I think. I found some prayers that children have prayed that parents have written about. One of them is, Dear God, my mom tells me that you have a reason for everything on earth. I guess broccoli is one of your mysteries. Please make my parents understand that if I don't eat salad, I do better at school. Please forgive me for hiding my sister's favorite doll, and please don't tell her where it is. And then lastly, dear God, I need you to make my mom not allergic to cats. I really want a cat, and I really don't want to ask my mom to move out. (laughs) The prayers of children, we smile at the innocent prayers of children, but we must remember that God takes prayer very seriously, and so we should as well. So this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, this chapter is unbelievable as we are brought into this conversation, well not conversation, but a petition, multiple petitions on Jesus' behalf towards God. It's impossible to really cover the depth and, and the gravity of what Jesus is praying here. In one morning, it would take months to dive in and really get deep down to the theology behind it and to the beauty of it. But we are going to spend a little bit of time in this passage and kind of get surface level with some things. You can, you can turn there. If you guys do have a Bible or, or use scripture on your phone, that's fine. Go ahead and turn to John 17. So of this prayer, John MacArthur says, of all G- the prayers of Jesus, this one recorded here in John 17 is the most profound and magnificent. Its words are plain yet majestic, simple yet mysterious. They plunge the reader into the unfathomable depths of the inter-Trinitarian communication, that's a lot, between the Father and the Son. The veil is drawn back and the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies, to the very throne of God. We're in this experience now as Jesus prays to the Father and we, it's just unbelievable that we get to see this. So where we find ourselves now here is uh, we're kind of at the tail end of the time that Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room. They have um, had their feet washed by Jesus in that teaching on being a servant. We've, we've seen um, the, the Last Supper take place as he teaches them about communion and the, the body and the blood. And uh, we see him call out Judas for his betrayal. We see him call out Peter for his eventual denial. And this is just hours before Jesus will be arrested in the garden. And in this final moment, he turns his attention to his father and offers up this prayer that is unlike any other. So we're going to kind of work through this text. And then as we work through, I want to give you six marks, six things that we can pray towards as a church. We need to be praying for these things individually, but we also want to be praying collectively as a, as a body for these six things to be true of us as Jesus prays these to God the Father. And I believe that if we begin to pray towards these things as a, as a congregation, then God can allow us to be used in an, even, in an even bigger way in our community than he's already allowing us to be used right now. So we want to pray to these things. We'll get there in just a second. One thing to note that's very interesting as Jesus prays is that the first five verses are all directed at the relationship between Jesus 
and the Father. It's all about that relationship. And then as you get down to 6 through 19, it's all about the relationship between Jesus and the believers of that time. And then verses 20 to 26, he talks about his relationship to future believers. So I want you to think about that for a second. As Jesus is praying these words 2,000 years ago, he is praying for you. He is praying for me that we would one day come to know him as Savior. Isn't it incredible to think that Jesus is pleading to God the Father on our behalf, and by the way, you're an answer to his prayer. That's unbelievable that we can stand here today and say, I am an answer to Jesus' prayer and petition to God the Father. That should like be really, really humbling if you think about that. Let's go ahead and go into verse one. And we're gonna go one through five and touch on one important aspect of this prayer right out of the gate. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify me so that you may be glorified, glorified, glorified. Um, last week, we learned that God's glory is the ultimate goal of our prayer. As he begins with, hallowed be your name, right? Your, your name needs to be lifted and, and set apart and, and, and holy and honored. Bring glory to your name. And here again, we see Jesus starting with, the idea of, of glory and glorifying God, therefore, in turn, Jesus being glorified himself. And I want to spend a few minutes because I think we can say, hey, our ultimate goal, our end goal is to glorify God. But what does that really mean to glorify God? I think that's one of those terms that we kind of, we kind of say and we throw around as Christians like, oh, you know, to God be the glory. Well, what does that really mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be glorified as he's praying in that verse, right? He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This is a, a present tense glorification. So Jesus is saying right now in, in the moments that are to come here shortly, glorify me. What does that mean as he talks about that? And then glorify me in your presence as it was before. So there's a future glorification that he's asking for as well. So what does that mean? Here it is. The first type of glorification is the word doxa. We sing doxology. Doxa is basically the knowledge of the true nature of someone so that you can give them the honor due. So bringing glory to God would be giving him the honor that is due because of who he is, because of his great name, his characteristics, what you know to be true about him should cause us to honor him in such a way that would bring glory to him. That's a type of bringing glory to. And then the other word you have is Shekinah glory. You might have heard of this kind of glory. This is the physical glory that is brought on by the presence of God. That is the, the kind of glory that Moses experienced as he came down off of the mountain after talking with God. And you see his face so brightly shining that he has to veil it. And Israel is saying, don't take the veil off. We can't look at you. It's too bright. The glory is a physical, blinding brilliance that no one can really approach it. That's Shekinah glory. That's the kind of glory that Jesus is asking for in that second petition with God. So the first one, he says, the hour has come, meaning it is time for me to die. What I have come on this earth to do, it's time. The hour has come. So he's saying, glorify me in this moment. Well, how can Jesus be glorified in his death? How can one be glorified in such a terrible situation as crucifixion? 
How is that possible? And so I wanted to do some reading on that, and I found a lot of stories on people who were really great in history that in their death were glorified. In other words, there was the true nature of who they were. There was honor brought to that in their death. One of them was Abraham Lincoln. Edwin Stanton, who was his war minister, had always regarded Lincoln as crude and uncouth and had taken no pains to conceal his contempt. So he didn't like Abraham Lincoln very much, had a lot of issues with him. But it says he looked down at his dead body with tears in his eyes and said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. So in his death, the true nature of the man is recognized and there's honor in that moment. Glory in the human sense as as we know it. Another story, Montrose, a Scottish royalist, is walking down a public road to his execution. And on observing his walk and how he carried himself, an English government agent wrote, it is absolutely certain that he hath overcome more men by his death in Scotland than he ever would have done if he had lived. For I never saw a more sweeter carriage in a man in all my life. So in that moment, the moments leading up to his death and then his execution, the true nature of the man was seen. And then we have the greatest example is Jesus. As he is hanging on the cross, you see a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, and he says, truly, this man is God's son. So in death, there's a realization, a recognition of the true nature of a, of a person. And so in that, that moment that is death on a cross, there is glory that happens because there's honor that's brought in that moment to the name of Christ. Here's how um, someone says it. The cross was, was the glory of Jesus because he was never more majestic than in his death. The cross was his glory because it drew people to him in a way that even his life had never done And it still is so. And so then after being glorified in his death, he's glorified in his resurrection, which is the second part of his petition. As Jesus was in the presence of God in eternity past, as we know, we know that in creation, Jesus was involved. We know that Jesus has always been, even though we know he was born as a baby, as everyone is, Um, he was born. That wasn't the beginning of Jesus. We know that he has always existed, just as God the Father has always existed, just as the Holy Spirit has always existed. Jesus existed in eternity past with God and the Spirit in heaven in Shekinah glory, in the brilliance of glory. And so what he's asking for in the next part is I want to be back there. My work on earth is done. I have followed you to the end. I have stayed in your will. I have done everything you've commanded me to do, God the Father. And now I want to be back in that glory with you. And so when we pray for glory of God, it is we want honor to be brought to his name that is deserving. And we can't really truly do that because we are humans and we are flawed, but we can really try to give honor in every, the best way possible to God because of who he is. And then one day we will be in that glory as well as our friend Bruce Radcliffe is and so many others that we know experiencing that glory face to face with Jesus. And I cannot wait for that day when my work on earth is done, as Jesus says. For the sake of time, I want to jump down to verse 13. And we're going to start getting into the six things that we're going to be praying towards, six marks that we're going to be praying towards. So you can title it that in your notes, if you guys are taking notes, six marks of the church to pray towards. And we're going to get through these six, and we are just simply touching surface level on these six marks. We can't possibly get deep down into really what it would look like truly for us to be living in these ways, but we can begin to see how we can pursue 
praying to that end, and you'll see what I'm talking about as we go. I would suggest, however, further study. I would just suggest opening John 17 sometime this week and just reading it and taking your time and seeing what else he prays for in verses 6 through 12, because there's a lot in there that he prays for and thanks God for and prays for the believers and prays for us. So, With that said, let's go to verse 13, and we're going to look at the first mark that we pray for as a church and as individuals, and that is for the mark of joy. We want to be known for our joy. What does that look like? Let's look at verse 13, and here's what Jesus says. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I am a sucker for military reunion videos. Does anybody else watch those things and just bawl your eyes out? I watch those things when they pop up on my Facebook feed or whatever it is. I'm already an emotional dude anyways, but when I watch these videos of soldiers surprising their family members, I am, it's like ugly cry. It's like lip quivering. I'm like, <laughs> like you know that thing? I'm doing that on the couch because I'm, I'm watching these videos. And the reason is, is because it's so emotional and it's so like, it's, it's just so overwhelming to think of the, the time that's been spent away and then this reunion. And the reason is, is because there's so much joy in that moment. And there's the emotion of joy, but there's also the rejoicing, the verb, the action of joy and living out joy. And that is the rejoicing together as they are just so excited and happy to be together. And that's the kind of joy that we want to be known for that Jesus is talking about here. It's not just an emotion. It's not just, I feel happy. It's not just, today's a great day and I'm going to, you know, skip down the road singing songs about sunshine or whatever, like, because I just feel really good. I got a good night's sleep and had my coffee and it's a great day to be alive. And, you know, it's, it's not just a feeling of happiness, but there's rejoicing, there's action involved, there's, there's a verb tense that we see here. And so we want to be known for our joy and for where we find our joy. And that is, that is found in Christ. I don't know if you guys saw this interview after the, uh, the game on Monday night between Clemson and Alabama, but they're interviewing the coach of Clemson. Dabo is, they're interviewing him and they're like, hey, where do you, you're, you're, you're so joyful all the time. You're always just so happy and you're just loving life. Where do you, where do you find that joy? They're asking him this, After the game, national television, millions of people watching. And you know what he says? He says, I find my joy in my Savior, Jesus. That's what he says. That's where I find my joy. So the source of our joy is found in Christ. And then it it just overwhelms us. And life is not always easy and it's not always good. But joy is always offered, even in light of the tough circumstances. The verb and the noun form of this word are found 132 times in the New Testament. And the reason for that is because the early church, especially in Acts, was known for their joy. They were known for when they got together and greeted one another, they were happy to see each other. And when they were, when they were sharing a meal together and when they were praying together and when they were reading God's word together and singing together and, and helping each other, they did it because they, they loved each other and there was joy and they were rejoicing and, and how God was moving through them and how he was working in them and what he was allowing them to do and how he was letting them see people come to a knowledge of Christ because of their ministry and they were rejoicing in, in that and that's what should be a mark of our church. We should be so excited when we see each other and we should be so happy and celebrate what God's been doing and and asking, hey, how has your week been? How has God been been working in your life? What has he been revealing to you? That's so awesome. Rejoice in that. And and as you guys get in your life groups and you're doing things together and there's joy and, and there's community and that's the kind of joy we should experience. But 
So often in our lives, we, we don't feel joy because circumstances will rob us of that joy. And more so than feeling joy, sometimes we feel defeat and we feel discouraged and we really struggle to find that joy that is promised to us. How can we pursue that kind of joy that would be found as a mark of the early church and as we want it to be for us as well? Well, in verse 13, Jesus kind of lays it out for us where we can begin at least. He says, these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy. These things are the things that Jesus taught. So I taught you these things so you can find joy. In other words, there is a direct correlation between our joy and our knowledge of the word of God. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's not just Jesus who says that. That should be enough for us to believe it if Jesus says it. But we see a lot more evidence of that through scripture. Scott read Psalm 19 to you. And Psalm 19 is all about that. How God's word brings joy and God's word is sufficient and God's word is rich and God's word this and God's word that. And Psalm 19, 8, it says the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The precepts, the things that we find in God's word, the commands, the ideas give joy to the heart. Psalm 119, 14 says, I will rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I will find joy and rejoice in following your word and living in such a way that you have commanded me to live. John 15, 10 through 11 says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So as we obey his commands, as we remain in him, then our joy is complete. So we begin by, by studying and pouring over and, and soaking up God's word. And if we know God and know his heart, even in the toughest times, it says, even in trials and persecution, consider it joy. That is supernatural only. We can't do that in and of ourselves, and so we need to be in God's word if we want to be a church that is known for our joy and for how we approach certain situations and rejoice even in the midst of trials. We have to be pouring over God's word. We have to understand truth and understand who God is. Joy, a pastor says, consists in having settled all our thoughts on God, his dealings with us, and his purpose with and through us. So long as we are unsettled, we are in a quagmire of doubt and inner turmoil, When we are settled in our knowledge of God, his will, and his ways, we can trust him peacefully and joyfully, whatever the circumstances. So number one, we want to be known as a church that has the mark of joy, and we want to pray to that end as Jesus is praying here to God. Number two, we want to be a church that is known for being holy. Look at verses 14 through 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, this word sanctify is kind of synonymous with holiness, and I'll explain that. But we tend to think of holiness 
as abstaining from certain things, right? Like, if I don't do this, then I'm going to be considered holy. I need to stay away from, when I was in high school, it was, there was this thing that was called straight edge, and it was this black X that you put on your hand, and you'd go to these, like, punk rock concerts, and it was, you would, you would go, alcohol, drugs, and promiscuous sex, and, like, you're like, I'm staying away from those things, and this is my X, and I'm going to abstain because I'm going to be holy, and, like, we think of as holiness as, like, staying away from certain things and, and abstaining from certain things, and I'm not going to do this because I want to be considered holy, but when we think about holy and that way only we are missing the meaning of where holiness is found because it's not just staying away from certain things. It's not just, you know, falling into a trap of something that then we are not considered holy because the word is synonymous with sanctify and with this word saint that we have. A saint is one who is set apart for a good work by God. And to sanctify means to set apart for special use by God. And so holiness is not just staying away from something. Holiness is the idea that we are set apart by God for a purpose of God. So what Jesus is praying here by saying sanctify them is set them apart and use them in a tremendous way. Keep them from the world. They're not, they're not of the world, but I want them to remain in the world because they need to have kingdom impact. They're not going to have kingdom impact if you take them out of the world. So keep them in it but keep them separate so that they can live in such a way that is honoring to you. Separate as far as how you live and how you speak and how you interact. So holiness is not just staying away from, it's being set apart by God. How are we sanctified? How are we made holy? How are we set apart by God? How do we look, think, talk? Uh, How do we behave differently than the world around us, but yet stay in the world? It says it right there. Scripture, all through this, by the way, Scripture is going to answer my questions that I ask, not rhetorically, but to you. I'm asking you questions, and then I'm going to answer them with Scripture, just so you know, because these are the best answers. But verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified and set apart by God's word. So we already talked about this in the first point. Find our joy by knowing this. Now we are set apart by this as well. To live differently to be set apart, be used by God, to be holy as God is holy, which is what we are commanded to be in Scripture. We must measure everything we do. We must set our standards by what God's word says. Our standard should be God's standard. Our standard should not be the world's standard. When our standard is the world's standard, we will fail. We will have false idols. We will pursue the wrong things. But when our standard is God's standard, it will be one that is holy and pure and righteous. And we will then be set apart for good works by him. Therefore, if we pursue this by, as individuals in a church, we will have a great kingdom impact in our community and to the ends of the world. And so we want to think as we are sanctified, set apart. How are we that way? We understand what God says. We try to live by what God says, and that will go in stark contrast to what the world tells us. But that is, that is being holy. We want to be a church that is set apart. We want to pray to that end. Number three, the third mark is truth which is also found in verse 17. I kind of talked about it a little bit, but it says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we want to be a church that is grounded on truth. We want to be a church that is known for looking at this as the lens through which we do everything in which it is everything we do revolves around this. Um, Ray Steadman was talking about this idea of scripture and truth. And here's what he says. The world lives by what it thinks is truth, by values and standards which are worthless, but which the world esteems highly. Jesus said, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That is how the world lives. How can we live in that kind of world, touch it and hear it, 
have it pouring into our ears and exposed to our eyes day and night and not be conformed to its image and squeezed into its mold? The answer is, we must know truth. We must know the world and life the way God sees it, the way it really is. We must know it so clearly and strongly that even while we're listening to these alluring lies, we can brand them as lies and know that they are wrong. But how are we to be sanctified in the truth of God's word? Great question. Let's answer it in scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book is not dead. This is not a book that is, should just sit on our shelf and collect dust and we brush it off and we bring it on Sunday because we want to look holy because we have a Bible. I remember the joke in Bible college that you were the most holy if you had a massive Bible. So these kids would bring like their John MacArthur study Bibles that were like this thick because they were like, I'm going to appear more holy. I'm like, really? Did you open that during the week? But this is living. This is active. This, this speaks to us even today. This is what the Spirit uses to challenge us, to teach us, to convict us. These are the words of God. God is not dead. God is alive. Sorry, that movie's cool, I guess. God's alive. And he speaks through this book. And we need to understand that this book, as it says, is sharper than any two-edged sword. This is our weapon. This is what we use to combat the ideas of the world and the things that it tries to throw at us. And we go, no, you know what? I don't believe that because here's what God says. Right? They try to bring you down a certain path, you guys at, at school. You guys are pulled in so many different directions. Well, just try this. It's not that big of a deal, right? Oh, it's going to be legal. It's not a big deal. Whatever, just try it, you know? And you go, you know what? That's fine, but that's not what God tells me. That's not how God tells me to live. That's not the standard that I live by. This is my sword. This is my weapon against evil, against temptation, against anything the world tries to throw at me that is not of God. And if we don't look at it as such, then we will continue to fail over and over again because this right here is active and living and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, it says. It discerns the intentions of our hearts. We don't even know what our intentions are sometimes, but God's word will show us what those are. We'll read and go, oh man, that is my motivation. That is what, where my heart is right now. That isn't lining up with what God says and I need to do a better job of living this way and not how the world tells me to live. And then in Matthew 4, 4, it says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You want to live? You want to live in such a way that is uh, full of joy and satisfaction and fulfilling? You live by this book. You live by God's words, not by bread alone. You don't just live and life is sustained because you eat and you have the things that are necessary. You want to truly live? You want to really live how God intended? You get into his word, you see how he wants you to live, and then you live that way. And then you, you know that you're aligning yourself with how God wants you to live and, and you're grounded in truth and you have to recognize that for your life. And if you're not living in that way and you're not getting into God's word, you're not going to experience him like you're intended to. And we wanna be that way as a church. We wanna be known for being grounded in scripture. And, and I hope, I hope, I tell the kids this sometimes, not often, but like I could be lying to you. 
right? I could be sitting up here saying things, and if you're not, if you're not studying Scripture and you're not saying, you know what, I want to know God's Word. I don't want to just come in here and just take whatever Adam or Matt says or whoever's up here and just take that as truth. We're not going to lie to you, okay? But, but you need to be in the Word yourself and be studying yourself. Don't look at Sunday morning as, I'm going to get my little fix of God's Word, and then I'm good for the week. You need to be in this Word on your own and know this front and back so that you can get up here and preach it. You're like, eh, I'm not doing that. Oh, man, I got going on that one. Okay, truth, God's word. We've got to turn to it. We've got to find our theology in it. We've got to set our standards by it. Number four is mission. The fourth mark is mission. Verse 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The fourth mark we want to be known for is being a church that is on mission. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here because in December, we did spend three weeks talking about the new mission statement and the heart behind that and why we believe that's where God wants us to go. And so we, we spent a lot of time on, on mission. But I do want to just say that mission we laid out, passionately guiding generations through gospel transformation, one home at a time, we believe that God has given that to us through our staff and elders, and we believe that that is going to be what drives everything that we do, that mission. We have a responsibility individually and corporately, as we told you last month, us included, of course, to try to pursue that, to try to pursue this mission. Some of Jesus's final words on this earth commanded his disciples to go. He didn't say, okay, now that you know me, just go live your life and I'll see you in heaven. It was go, go therefore and make disciples. Get out into the world and tell people what you've seen, tell people what you've experienced, tell people about me. He didn't pray we'd be removed from the world. He doesn't want us to avoid the world. He doesn't want us to just, you know, be protected and not ever experience what the world is so that we don't know how to face the world and live in such a way that's honoring to God and and go against the world. He wants us to be grounded in truth so we can discern what is not of God and then do something about it. But we have to be in the world to be able to do that. You can't change the world if you're not in it. And so we need to be on mission and we need to shine the light of Jesus for those who have not yet seen it or experienced it. Number five, unity, verse 20 through 23. This is the fifth mark, unity. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's crazy. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 22, they may be one even as we are one. In other words, our unity that he is praying for should be parallel to the unity that is found in the Trinity. That doesn't make a lick of sense to me. How we can look at God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and even think that our unity could come close to what that must be like. But yet, what Jesus is saying is, I want them to be one, even as we are one. How do we do that? How are we unified in the sense that they are? There's a few verses that give us some clues into that. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we are all different, we're unique, there's diversity, but yet we are unified in one Spirit. We all have the same Spirit indwelling us 
if we do claim the name of Christ. And so our unity is found in the spirit, supernaturally. In a way, we are in unity in the same way that Christ and the Father are with the spirit. We are all different, but yet unified. Also, we belong to the family of God. That's said all throughout, right? We're children of God, the family of God. We're adopted into his family, and he calls us his children. That means you have millions and millions of brothers and sisters all across the world. Family. Not just other Christians, but family. Family is a lot tighter of a word than fellow Christian. It gives a a deep and intimate idea of relationship when you think about that every Christian in this room and beyond these walls is your family. They are your brothers and your sisters. And so we are united as family. Imagine thinking of each other in that way. I don't know, you guys are like, I don't like my brother. I don't like my sister. But imagine if we thought of other Christians as our true family and treated them that way and loved them that way, no matter the disagreements or the conflict that arises, as we know it does in families, but we yet know that they are still family. We're also part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 paints a picture of that for us. We're all unique, but yet included in the body of Christ, so we're unified in the body. So how can we pursue unity in this sense that Jesus is speaking of it? We've got to understand first and foremost that we are a part of a greater thing than ourselves We are a part of a family. We are a part of a body. We have to see that for the truth that it is and then treat others in that way. We have to look at people as fellow Christians, as family, as part of the same body and try to live in such a way that would reflect that. So we gotta understand that first and foremost. Second, you can join a life group because while in this room, In a big community, you can sense unity in a way, right? We sing songs together, and we lift up the name of Christ together, and we read God's word together, and we pray together, and we share coffee and a donut, and in passing say hello. And so we get a sense of unity. But when you're in a life group, and you do life with people, and you know the the struggles, and you know the stuff that they're going through, and you're involved in helping and praying and loving. And when you're in that intimate setting, it gives you an even better picture of what unity must look like, because that's even closer to the original church in Acts. And so when you see them having joy and being unified, they are in home churches that are smaller groups of people, and they are unified as one because they know where they stand as far as their position before God, but then they know where they stand in the family, and so they help each other, and they love each other. And even when there's wrong against each other, they work it out, and they get past it, and they continue to love each other and continue to serve one another. And so we need to understand that. And then you serve with those people, and you love the community with those people, and you see God do a crazy thing in your life group as a result. And then that builds that bond and creates a little bit more unity Hashtag life groups. All right, love. You guys know that was a hashtag? All right. Number six, love. The last one, the last mark. Verse 25 and 26, here it is. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the greatest mark of them all, because this is the one that holds them all together. We cannot find the other marks if we do not have love for God and love for one another. It will not be possible. 
It's also the hardest one to keep concise, but I'm going to. All right, Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Agape love, self-sacrificial love, always putting other people before yourself kind of love is the kind of love that he is talking about right here. It's revolutionary because it's not how the world loves. It is a self-centered kind of love. It's self-gain. It's self-promotion. It's what can I get out of this relationship. It's self-serving. It's not the way the world loves yet. How many of us in here habitually love in that way? The agape kind of love. So it comes naturally to us. Not often. We try, but that's not our nature necessarily. But this is one of the greatest ways we can show the world who Jesus is. They will know you are Christians by your love, by your love. That song is old and kind of like, but it's true. They know you're a Christian by the way you love. Do people know you're a Christian by the way you love them? Would they say that about you? Would they say that about me, the way they interact with people? Would they say, man, you love differently. You treat me differently. There must be something about you that's different than other people. Well, yeah, there is. Let me you know, share that with you. It's a great end to the gospel with somebody. Does the community that we live in know that we exist as a church because of our love? That's kind of a hard question to think about. I think in some ways, yes. We partner sometimes with organizations. We, some of us do a good job in our neighborhoods of loving people. But overall, if we closed our doors and took those flags down, would they miss us? I don't know, that's a, that's a tough question for me to think about as a staff member and you know, our elders to consider that. But would they know? Would they know that we exist because of the way we love our community and love people in our neighborhoods? It's mm, a good question. I don't have an answer. I guess we can go ask them. How about this? 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That one should hit pretty deep. If you don't love, you don't know God. That's what is said. That seems really harsh, but those aren't my words. Those are the words found in 1 John 4, 8. If you do not love, you do not know God. That's a, a tough heart check. Okay, that's a lot. There's a lot to digest. I hope it wasn't too much. I hope it wasn't overwhelming. Our ultimate goal as we pray, of course, is the glory of God. That's first and foremost when we pray. The end goal should be for him to get glory in some way, for his name to be made great. And then, as a church, we believe that these six marks are something we should pray towards and want to be true about us. So let me just recap real quick for you. The first mark is joy. We want to be known for our joy. We rejoice in God's truth. We rejoice in our fellowship. We, we are happy to see one another. We, we want to be known for being holy, set apart. we got to view our church as such so that we can bring glory to God and then see his kingdom furthered as a result of our ministry. We want to be grounded in truth, grounded in scripture. Everything we, sh- we do should be with this as our standard. This is our conviction. This is our guide. We look at everything through the lens of scripture. Um, we should be about mission. Number four, we, we got to buy into the mission that God set before us. Number five, we have to be unified in our body. We've got to understand while unique and diverse, we are all under the same spirit and the same family of the same body of Christ. And we've got to love one another in such a way that the rest of the world sees a difference in us. We want to be a church that prays and prays to that end. We want to be sanctified. We want to be set apart for the purpose of bringing glory to God and seeing his kingdom realized out there, outside of these walls. We want to lead people to an understanding of who Jesus is. And that's what we want to pray towards so that lives are radically changed. Let's pray for that. God, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you for truth and the fact that we get to see what prayer is meant to be like as Jesus, your son, prays to you, our father, his father. And we know God, scripture tells us that he's still doing this. He's still interceding on our behalf. He's still praying for us. He has your ear sitting at the right hand of you right now, interceding on our behalf. The things that we don't even know we need in our lives, he is praying for those things for us. That is overwhelming and so humbling. And God, I want to pray as a church. I want to pray individually that we would understand deeper who you are. I want to be known for these things in my life, God. I want to be joyful and I want to be grounded in truth and I want to be holy and I want to be on mission and I want to be unified with other people and I want to be loving to people and I want that to be true for our church as well. So please, God, Lead us in that way and allow us to pray in that way with, of course, the end goal of bringing you glory, making your name great, but then being known for a church that is set apart and doing great things for your kingdom. That's what we want. That's what we desire. So do that in us and move us in that direction, God. We love you so much. Give us a great rest of our time together. In your son's name, amen.